someone had asked you what the most famous sermon in American history would be, what would you guess? Probably Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. I think I first heard about that sermon when I was in uh, ninth grade in English class, used by God in the First Great Awakening in the 1700s. But what about most, the second most famous sermon? I'm sure there's a lot of different answers. There's no official answer, but a lot of people think that it's actually a sermon called Payday Someday by a man named R.G. Lee, probably the second most famous. They say that he preached this particular sermon over 1,200 times between 1920 and 1975. It really is a classic sermon, and it was an exposition of this morning's passage. So if after we're done, you'd still like a little bit more, you can go and listen to that hour and 15-minute sermon called Payday Someday on YouTube. It really is a classic. But this, this passage comes from 1 Kings. Uh, so this is after the, the reign of King David over Israel. This is after the king, of, uh, king Solomon and his reign over Israel. So the kingdom now has split into two. There's a northern kingdom of Israel called Samaria and a southern kingdom called Judah. And so Ahab is the king of that northern part of it. And this account, this story that we've just had read for us, takes place in a city called Jezreel in Samaria. Uh, Ahab had a royal palace there. It's located in a a valley with a lot of fertile soil. Maybe you can see it. It's the red dot on the the slide there in the northern part of, of Israel. It really is interesting. Even today, where that city was, there is an agricultural village uh, and just within the last 10 years, they have uncovered some things through archaeology. They found a royal residence that was there in this same place, and they also found wine presses, pictured there behind me. Stone structures where they would stomp on the grapes and then store it in order for the grape juice to ferment and turn into wine. So as we think about this, as we read about this, just realize this is not a fairy tale that somebody made up. Uh, this would have happened historically in this place around the year 860 B.C., Throughout the book of Kings, we see a bunch of Israel's different kings and prophets, and the whole book is sort of haunted by the Mosaic Covenant, the law of God. Remember the Ten Commandments? It's always there in the background, because the historian, the writer who recorded Kings for us, was evaluating different kings, and he was evaluating them based on their ability to withstand and uphold the law. The good ones embody and enforce the righteous law of God of Israel. The bad kings, the kings who were unjust, well, the prophets would come to those kings and they would try to bring them back to obedience to the law by speaking words of judgment against them. The prophets were trying to call Israel back to, to, to faithfulness, to the covenant of God, to the law. So the book of Deuteronomy is kind of humming in the background of all, the whole of the book of Kings, first and second. The overwhelming majority of kings that ruled over the both in the north and the south Kingdoms of Israel were horrible, evil men. But Ahab was actually about as bad as it got. Just a little bit after our passage in verse 25, it tells us as much. It says that there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. R.G. Lee called him a vile human toad who squatted upon the throne of Israel. That's a good turn of phrase. He married Jezebel who was from a foreign nation. She worshiped the false god Baal, and so that, that idol worship, she brought herself uh, into Israel with her. In fact, she killed a whole bunch of Yahweh's prophets because she didn't like the fact that they were calling her out on her evil and Ahab's evil. 
Well, as we look at this passage, I just want to help you notice the structure of it. Hopefully this is helpful for you, noticing the structure of the passage, the big picture, and then we're going to get down to the details a little bit. It starts out with Ahab not getting what he wants, and then it sort of mirrors at the end where Ahab gets what he wants. And then in, in that B, that next section, it says that Jezebel says that she's going to go ahead and get him what he wants. You notice there again at the B in the end, it says Jezebel says that she got it. All this is sort of showing us is that the big main idea, the thrust, the heart, the core of this story is what is found in the middle there. Verses 8 through 10, that's where Jezebel comes up with a scheme to take Naboth's vineyard by having him killed. And then at 11 through 14, that's pretty much a repeat of what happens in 8 through 10. It says that the elders and the nobles did exactly what they were told to do. So there, in the middle of the story, which really is the core, the heart of the story, is the death of an innocent man at the hands of those in power. The story is a perversion of justice. The big idea of our sermon is that the perversion of justice can be hidden from man, but not from God. The perversion of justice can be hidden from, God, hidden from man, but not from God. So as we're going to walk through this text and flesh that out a little bit, first we're going to notice Ahab's covetousness, and we'll notice Naboth's integrity, and then Jezebel's conspiracy, the leader's compliance, and then the crime's conclusion. Well, let's pray before we dive in. Father, we are grateful to, to be able to hear your word read and to gather together, even online, to, to hear it read and explained and applied. Father, we need your spirit to help us to understand it, help us focus, help us to learn more about you and ourselves so that we might become more like Jesus. We love you. Thank you for this opportunity. We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, Ahab's covetousness, verses 1 and 2, and also in 4. King Ahab sinfully desired something that did not belong to him. He was covetous. Ahab was the king. He had everything that he needed, but he saw this vineyard that was by his house, his big royal estate, and he decided that he needed to have that one. Now, to own a vineyard was a pretty big deal. Uh, Naboth must have been fairly well off. He wasn't a poor man. Wine was in high demand, and he must have been doing pretty well for himself. But Ahab sets his eyes on this plot of land, and he wants to convert it. He sees a vineyard, but he wants to turn it into a vegetable garden or a garden of green herbs. Just for the record, that is a huge step backwards. Vineyards are better than vegetable gardens. The only... <laughs> The only other, it's interesting, the only other time that this phrase comes up uh, in the Old Testament is found in the book of Deuteronomy. When Moses is preparing God's people to enter into this promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, he says, remember, this is way better than you had in Egypt. All you had there were these lame vegetable gardens. And so Israel was, calling, uh, was called by God, he, they were his vineyard too. So even here in this picture of a vineyard and a vegetable garden, we have two competing kingdoms as it were, as if Ahab was trying to make Israel more like Egypt. Ahab seems to ask nicely enough, says, hey, I'll, I'll pay you full price for it, or I can give you like even a better vineyard somewhere else. But when Naboth refuses to give up, he pouts. It affected him to the point that he got vexed and sullen, as the text says. He got angry. He was very upset. He went home and he hid his face. He wouldn't eat food. It sounds like the response of an angry toddler, does it not? Here's the leader of the nation who didn't get the result he wanted, and he's acting like a child. 
It's like his mom and dad told him that he couldn't get the box of Lucky Charms and he has a meltdown right there in the cereal aisle. But that's just, that's just the outward display of what's actually going on in Ahab's heart. What's going on inside of his heart is covetousness. A little bit later in this passage, verse 19, Elijah comes to Ahab and brings this word of judgment against him. He says, Ahab has killed and Ahab has taken possession. Those are the sixth and eighth commandments, respectively. You shall not kill, you shall not steal. Well, he killed Naboth and he stole his land. But notice where all of this begins, before all these things, it's, it's his covetousness. Exodus chapter 20, the 10th commandment, says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. It's been said that this tenth commandment is the most searching of the commandments, because it deals with private thoughts and feelings and emotions. Covetousness isn't an action, it's not the sort of thing that you can always see evidence of, like those other commandments. It happens privately, inwardly, in the heart. King Ahab sees he wants, he can't have, it drives him mad, and it leads to murder. It sounds similar to the story of King David and Bathsheba and Uriah, right? His passions are at war within him. Really what this is is a vivid illustration of what James teaches us in his own book, chapter 4. He says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Maybe you felt this, the same covetousness in your own heart, even perhaps this last Christmas, or maybe you witnessed it with your own kids. Oh man, he got that? That's not fair. Man, I wanted that. Even if you have everything you need, there's still that one thing that if I could have that, Ah, then I could be satisfied. Unless you can have that, you can't be satisfied, you can't be content. I'm surely you've felt that in your own heart. I think that's part of the human condition. One way that affects me, a silly way, is with books. When a new book comes out or I hear about a classic book, I'm like, oh, i got to get that book. Never mind that I have a whole other stack of books that I've not yet read that at one point were super important for me to get as well. i got to get that book. Discontentment is a bottomless pit. Contentment is a Christian duty. 1 Timothy 6, 6 says that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. Does the prosperity of others bother you? One has to think that so much of the warfare between different economic classes that we're seeing embodied, even right now in society, is predicated upon covetousness. Take heed and beware of covetousness in your heart. Point two, Naboth's integrity. In verse three, Naboth says to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Naboth refused to part with his vineyard. His response is very clear. It's very emphatic. 
He even uses what might be considered an oath. He says, like, may Yahweh curse me if I give you this vineyard. And notice that he calls it the inheritance of his fathers. The vineyard is the inheritance of his fathers, and that's important. That's an important phrase. Naboth doesn't want to just keep his vineyard for sentimental purposes. It's not merely because he remembers walking through it with his dad and his grandpa, and he's got a lot of nice memories tied to it. It goes much deeper than that. In Leviticus 25, Israel's law says that the land can't be sold because it belongs to Yahweh. The promised land, this land flowing with milk and honey, belonged to God, and he gave it to Israel in order for them to steward it, to keep it, to guard it. So when Israel came into the land, they split up the land between the 12 different tribes. It was allotted, and that's the way that it was supposed to stay. So really, Naboth's, it wasn't his land to sell to begin with. The law says that even if someone had to sell their land in order to pay off debt or something like that, the land was supposed to return to them during the year of Jubilee when, when, when things get reset. And so this idea of the family, tribal continuity of the ownership of the land is super important to Israel. Naboth couldn't sell his, or exchange his vineyard because it belonged to his ancestors who ultimately owned it because they were stewarding it on loan from Yahweh. So it's interesting to note that Naboth is trying to be more faithful to the laws and the customs of Israel than his own king is. So his actions are in line with God's law. We're going to say that's the definition of integrity here. He's presented as an upright, God-fearing citizen, Naboth is. Naboth tried to be faithful to God in the face of serious governmental pressure. The king asked him to go against his religious convictions about obedience to God's law, and he refused. And it cost him his life. I'm sure it's not too hard for you to begin to draw comparisons between Naboth's treatment and the sort of governmental pressures that uh, those with religious convictions have experienced here in America. This is a theme that we're probably going to have to keep in mind. In the case of Christians in America, it's probably going to look more like financial oppression than being taken outside of the city and stoned. But it might increasingly be difficult to live in the public sphere according to our Christian convictions. It's, there's always been a cost to following Jesus. We've always had to count the cost of discipleship, right? But as the temperature rises, we're going to need to maintain this concept in our hearts and in our minds. We need to maintain our integrity. But let's also keep a more global perspective on this, shall we? Uh, on Wednesday of this last week, Open Doors USA released their annual list of their World Watch list. Uh, 50 countries where it's most difficult to follow Jesus. North Korea and their communist and post-communist oppression tops the list. Number one country. It's said that Christians in North Korea aren't allowed to have a Bible. If a Bible is discovered at someone's home, the person will be arrested, tortured, and sentenced to life imprisonment in a labor camp which equates to a death sentence. So it does get worse than taking Merry Christmas off of Starbucks cups. Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, Pakistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iran, Nigeria, India, these are the top 10 countries where it's difficult, legitimate oppression, danger to their lives to follow Jesus. We regularly pray for those who are persecuted in nations across the world here in gathered worship. 
They say that in the top 50 countries alone, more than 309 million Christians experience persecution and discrimination because they, don't follow, because they follow Jesus. Lord, come quickly. Point three, Jezebel's conspiracy. In verses five through 10, we see Jezebel's conspiracy. So now Ahab's wife, it's Queen Jezebel, she now enters into the story. She's on the scene now. She comes into his room and finds Ahab there, throwing a fit. She says, essentially, why are you angry? Why are you not eating? What is your problem? And then Ahab tells her about Naboth's vineyard, and her response is interesting. She says to him, do you now govern Israel? I take that as sort of a jab, sort of a bit condescending. She's like, what do you mean you, he won't sell the land? I thought you were the king. And then she says, well, I myself will give you the vineyard. So now Jezebel is stepping into the role of an abusive and unjust ruler. She's like, if you're not going to be king, that's fine. I will. So she uses Ahab's stationery to send letters in Ahab's name to the elders and the leaders of the city. And she tells them to proclaim a fast. Why a fast? Why would she say to proclaim a fast? Well, Israel would call a fast for like a special intense season of prayer, of repentance, when they know they needed to repent, seek God's help, seek God's forgiveness. It was like a signal to the city that something terrible has happened or might happen, sort of like an emergency alert that you might get on, on your phone. Calling for a fast would give the appearance that they needed to repent, they needed to get right with God as a community. And, as it turns out, it would provide them an opportunity to put Naboth up in front of everyone and have this kangaroo court in front of the city. They could accuse him of doing something that could bring judgment against the whole city. It's like, well, we, gotta, we have to deal with this guy. And it says that they set him at the head of the people. The phrase is a little ambiguous. He could either be at the head because he was an important leader there in the city, a place of honor, or it could be there that he's, just, he's put up there in the front at the head, so he's sort of conspicuous and obvious when they accuse him of this crime. Either way, Jezebel tells the city's leaders to find a couple of worthless men to lie about him. The phrase for worthless men, sons of Belial, is a phrase that doesn't occur very often, but usually it's a way to describe scoundrels, liars, lawbreakers, outlaws, slanderers, uh, the sort of people that you would find in the cantina in Star Wars. They were the kind of turkeys who would be totally willing to lie about Naboth, saying that he had cursed God and cursed the king. So they, they set up this fake little kangaroo court, they accuse him of blasphemy, they judge him as being guilty, and they executed him for his crime, supposed crime. Jezebel plotted this conspiracy, and then she communicated it to those that she wanted to help her enact it. A conspiracy is a scheme among more than one person to engage in illegal activity. And that's exactly what we see here. Jezebel working with the city's leaders and elders. Please note that this is different from a conspiracy theory. That's a wrong-headed fear, an overwhelming, exaggerated fear of conspiracies. Jezebel conspires together with the city leaders in Jezreel to break the law and to destroy Naboth. Now, there's a, a lot of confusion and upheaval right now in society. I want to plead with you. Please be careful and discerning with the sort of things that you're watching and reading across the political spectrum. 
There are so many political cults being started right now, trying to lead you astray, even using scripture to do it. Please be discerning. Don't get pulled in. Please be careful. What's really fascinating here is that Jezebel actually knew Israelite law pretty well, especially for a foreigner having just come in. Remember, she was from a foreign country, but she knew the law well enough to subvert it, to be able to use the law for her own personal gains. Check it out. According to Deuteronomy 17, a criminal charge requires two witnesses, thus the two worthless men. According to Leviticus 24, cursing God, which is blasphemy, is punishable by stoning. Also there in Leviticus 24, the elders or stonings are meant to take place outside of a city. This is all part of the story that she's concocting. According to Deuteronomy 19, the elders and the nobles of a city are meant to administer justice as moral authorities, upholding righteousness and justice in, in the cities and in the community. These are the laws that she knew and wanted to bend to her will. Jezebel shows herself to be savage and cunning and murderous and sinful. Ahab doesn't actually show himself in this passage at all in these verses. That's important. Ahab shows himself to be wicked and passive and sinful. He gives up his responsibility, and yet he's still going to be held responsible. A reminder to all of us men, and it sounds like maybe you remember like Adam in the Garden of Eden, that same sort of a thing. A reminder to all of us men, we cannot fail to uphold our duties as leaders of our own homes. Being passive does not get us off the hook. Point four, the leader's compliance in verses 11 through 14. So here in these verses, the people who are responsible for being the moral authorities to uphold justice in their community are actually complicit in this kangaroo court and the death of Naboth. The elders and the leaders do exactly as they were instructed in the letters that Jezebel sent in King Ahab's name. It's interesting to note, though, that these corrupt nobles, leaders, elders in the city, they report back to Jezebel directly. Did you notice that? They don't write back to Ahab. They must have known from the beginning that this was Jezebel's plot, even though the letter came from Ahab, remember? It had a seal on it and everything. It was just stationary, but they knew what was going on. According to Deuteronomy chapters 19 and 21 and 22 and 25, over and over again, the elders and nobles of a city are meant to administer justice as moral authorities in the community there in Israel. But they've actually administered injustice. You know, there's a lot of talk right now in the last couple of years, really, about the, the concept of systematic injustice. In this episode, the story of Naboth's vineyard, the structures that were put in place to protect people were contorted, they were twisted by those in power. And it was enabled by those who knew about it but were silent, and they played along. The law was abused to oppress and to kill. The murder and theft of land were committed according to the constructs of the law, at least on the appearance of it. The private sins that could be hidden, like, like false testimony, that allowed the plot to be successful, but in the end, Ahab and Jezebel were brought to justice by the king of kings. It makes sense to me that if people are sinful individuals, when they get together as a group, they can be sinful together and use whatever structures are available for their own selfish gain. 
And the famous phrase that Lord Acton gave us is so important here. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. But what this narrative shows us is not a political scandal. It's a powerful illustration of the scandal of human sinfulness. And this should make sense to us because we all know, we know that humanity is depraved. There is a real human tendency to abuse authority whenever it's gotten. Sin, that selfish desire to rebel against the gracious law-giving God runs through all of our hearts. Not just Ahab, not just Jezebel, not even just the city's leaders and nobles. One commentator, Alex, uh, Alexander McLaren, noted that there, there's three different types of dangerous characters in this story. First, you have Ahab, who is wicked and weak. Then you have Jezebel, who was wicked and strong. And then you have the elders of Jezreel, who were wicked and subservient. If, if any of us have actually had it within our power, within our own sphere of influence, to stop activities or plans that were designed to disadvantage others, have failed to combat those policies as a matter of God-fearing integrity, then we have failed to fulfill our duty as Christians. Carl Henry says it like this, quote, Biblical social concern is God's active concern. And he intends every member of the human race to share it. Most of all, he expects the evangelical community to be aggressively dedicated to it in word and in deed. Well, justice is inescapably social. It's sort of definitional of what justice is to begin with. But as we think about justice, let me encourage you. The social implications of justice are a real concern. We can see it plainly here in the text and throughout Scripture. But it's so important to remember that what is just is defined by God. The reason that this story is so infuriating to us when we read it, and hopefully that's your response, your emotional response to hearing the story, should be fury and anger. That's what the author's going for. The reason that it's so infuriating is because it's contrary to the law of God. The concept of the perversion of justice is very much present in the Bible, but it's different from what many mean when they talk about social injustice or social justice today. Listen to this quote from theologian Peter Gentry. He says this, quote, Biblical social justice, however, is not what is meant in America today. Rather, it's a way of summing up all the commands in the Mosaic Covenant for the right way to relate to God and to treat other people and the earth's resources. That's a really good definition of what justice is. God defines what is just and what is right. So let that guide your conversations and all these conversations that you surely are having about justice. I like the line from a beautiful eulogy song. It says this, I'm not afraid to talk about social injustices. Let's also talk about the throne where perfect justice is. Good turn of phrase. Our brother Toby Jennings, of course, has written a helpful article on the subject that you can find it online called Race and Racism in the Bible. If you need a link, let me know. Let's move on to the final verses here. Point five, the crime's conclusion. Jezebel's plan was a success. She did exactly what she said that she was going to do. And in the end, Ahab got Naboth's vineyard. And he got it for free, although it would cost him dearly. According to 2 Kings 9.26, Naboth's sons were also put to death at the same time that Naboth was. 
So that continuous pattern that we, that we heard was so important for Israel of maintaining uh, ownership of the land was, was cut short. Nabus' family was cut off. There was no heir to claim that the vineyard was an inheritance belonging to his father of, of Nabus' children. The king now could lay claim to this land, to this vineyard, because it belonged to this executed criminal. This confiscation of land was clearly very much against the spirit, if not the explicit letter, of the law. Deuteronomy 13 and 17 have something to say about this. But what amazed me most in studying this passage and preparing for this is that the whole crime took place under a false pretense of preserving the dignity of God and observing his law. How disgusting. Naboth was killed because he was accused of blaspheming God, but this whole episode was an insult to a holy and just God. Ahab and Jezebel were not able to hide their wickedness from the Lord. The prophet Elijah brought a word of judgment upon them both. So Elijah comes to them. He says, have you killed and also taken possession? In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your own blood. I, God, will bring disaster upon your household, and dogs shall devour Jezebel within the walls of this city. They would reap what they sowed. God takes this very seriously, doesn't he? Ahab, hearing God's word of judgment, repented in humility. And God showed mercy to him. He says that God shows not to, to bring this promised disaster upon Ahab during his lifetime, but instead during his son's days. That's remarkable. What a reminder to each of us that God won't turn his back on us when we've committed even remarkable sins, when we come to him with a humble contrite heart, even evil King Ahab was given mercy by God. Yes, his next generation paid the price for the trajectory of the evil that Ahab set, but he was able to reap the benefit of the repentance that he gave, that he showed to God in his lifetime. Perhaps you or a member of your family or a friend has been a victim of injustice. Those who might even escape Temporal justice in this life will be made to give an account in the end. This is why R.G. Lee's sermon is called Payday Someday. God is not mocked, Galatians reminds us. The perversion of justice can be hidden from man, but not from God. That should bring us a lot of comfort. And might I also suggest that it should send a chill up our spines. Because if we remember that that same sinfulness that runs through Ahab and Jezebel and the city's leaders, that same sin runs through the center of our hearts. We too should be fearful of God's justice. Here's how R.G. Lee put it. He says, quote, Yes, the judgments of God often have leaden heels and travel slowly, but they always have iron hands and crush completely. We each know that we've practiced our own injustices, don't we? The ways that we have rebelled against God, broken his law, not loved him as we ought, not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Even if it's not on the scale of this this story here of Ahab and, and Jezebel, God takes justice seriously. But we, as Christians, the reason like we're even gathered here this morning 
is because we're called to look to the cross. Listen to this picture that John Owens uh, paints for us of God's justice shown at the cross. See him lifted up upon the cross, the earth trembling under him as if unable to bear his weight, and the heavens darkened over him as if shut against his cry, and himself hanging between both as if refused by both. And all this because our sins did meet upon him. This, of all things, does most abundantly manifest the severity of God's vindictive justice. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer injustice. He himself was put to death by the government, the victim of two false witnesses who accused him of blasphemy. By faith, the punishment that you and I deserve for our rebellion against God is finished at the cross. All of our sin, past, present, future. God help us to repent. God help us to trust in the provision of Christ. He takes justice seriously. It's evidenced in the cross. And when Jesus returns in power, he's going to enact the perfect justice that this story makes us want. He's going to bring it on earth as it is in heaven. This is our blessed hope, that our desire for justice and our hatred of injustice will be met perfectly in King Jesus. Let's pray.